Hallelujah. Christ arose. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. During this past year, we've obviously had periods of lockdown when we weren't able to see people and do as much. Even now, we're still under restrictions, but at least we can come out in some kind of way. And during those times, both back in the springtime and also earlier this past year, I, I found it a great joy to have a, a colleague to go for a walk with, a colleague in ministry. That colleague and, and his family are very precious to us as a congregation. And although Robert is no longer active in this church, we still very much remember him in our prayers. And so I'm going to ask Robert, Robert Wainwright, to come forward. We're doing everything very socially distanced, you notice. He's over here and I'm over here. And he's got his own microphone, which is on, but probably needs to be unmuted. I had to go and get you batteries, by the way. That's what I was doing. I had run out of power. Um, so I had to go and get you batteries. But welcome, Robert. Nice to see you. And nice to have you with us this morning. And I thought Robert was going to go back down in the south just towards the end of this week. So I just thought you'd give us a wee chance to have a wee chat, to hear a wee bit about what you're doing. Maybe for folk who are listening online who aren't just so aware of the, the story of your own self and your family and, and the life of this church, Perhaps you can just say a wee bit about yourself and about what your job is at the present time. Uh, well, can you hear me? Yeah, good. Um, so I've been in Uddingston, I suppose, since 1997. Uh, so I've been sort of either worshipping here or part of the uh, mission community of Park Church for the last sort of 25 years, I suppose. Um, and I went down south about 15 years ago to study and for the last three years I've been the chaplain, uh, the kind of minister, if you like, at one of the colleges in Oxford um, called Oriel College. Um, so my sort of duties are wide-ranging. Um, part of it looks a little bit like running a church within the college, so about 600 students. Uh, we've got chapel within, within the, the, the quadrangles of the college. Uh, I also do some teaching, so I teach Reformation history, 16th century church, uh, to sort of one or two students at a time in tutorials, and I oversee all the admissions to the college, so when people come up for interview at Oxford, uh, then I sort of administer all of that and, and send them letters to say whether they got in or not, that sort of stuff. Probably for most of us, um, unless we visited Oxford maybe on holiday, uh, our experience of Oxford is watching it on Inspector Morse and another um, detective um, programs on, on television. Um, it certainly traditionally has a, a, has a name of being obviously one of the two, the universities in our country, Cambridge being the other one. Um, any, what, what is it like as a university? You studied at Durham, which is obviously a, a university of, of great esteem as well. But what is, is it quite a distinctive community? Or you mentioned Oriel College. Maybe for some of us, we wonder, is, what, what does that mean? Maybe just a wee bit about the background. Um, so Oxford has been ranked the top university in the world for the last five years, I think. So we're, we're very pleased with that. Um, it's one of the oldest universities in the world. Um, often when American tourists are wandering around town, they want to know where is the university and sort of think that the university is a building. Um, in Oxford, the university doesn't have its own building. Uh, there are 40 colleges, so a little bit like halls of residence, but uh, it's much more than a simple hall of residence. You, you eat there, people play sport, um, sort of all kinds of societies and do their teaching within their hall of residence. So each of those about 40 colleges has its own distinct identity, um, has its own teaching staff, but 
faculties of, of history or, or chemistry or, or whatever throughout the university, so people will go out of their colleges to go to lectures. And I think over those thousand years, it has, of course, built up a lot of traditions in the way that it does its teaching. So the, the tutorial system is pretty unique to Oxford and Cambridge of having a one-to-two tutorial with your uh, tutor. Um, it allows for very intense supervision and learning. Um, a lot of it is, is very much uh, self-taught. We give the students a reading list and expect them to come back a week later with a, a 3,000-word essay and, and knowing their stuff. Um, and then we talk about it and grill them for an hour about those things. So it's an intensely academic environment. Um, certainly, the, the sort of students there ha have done extremely well. Uh, we, a, a big part of my job is to try to broaden the intake, so to, to get people to apply to Oxford who might not normally think of applying to an elite university, uh, perhaps because they come from uh, a social or ethnic background where it's just not normal to go on to higher education. Um, but we're really keen to get whoever is the academically best at interviewing to come and study with us, irrespective of that. Uh, and you mentioned part of your job is the admissions. Do you actually meet the students that are coming? Yeah, so um, the admissions process is a very long-running one. You'll have, have heard of um, some of you will have done your UCAS forms or, or heard of children or grandchildren doing their UCAS forms and writing their personal statements. Um, so I oversee uh, the sort of the administrators who receive those forms. Um, and then in my particular college, I help with the admissions for theology in particular. So I'll read about 40 to 50 UCAS forms and choose maybe... 15 of them to come for an interview and they'll get two interviews with two tutors mm -hmm. um, we try and choose about five of them mm -hmm. each year mm -hmm. so it's extremely competitive theology is one of the easiest subjects <laughs> to get into it's only a sort of three to one ratio so. <laughs> only yes. you, it's obviously a very full program because you obviously have your university work and your chaplaincy work they're obviously integrated um, maybe a wee bit more about your chaplaincy work. What does that involve? Well, the college was originally founded in 1326, um, and it was founded as a college of scholars to study uh, law and other useful subjects in honour of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, of course, uh, 700 years ago, it was a Catholic sort of institution uh, in honour of Mary, and it's pretty unique to still, within a modern university, uh, to still have a religious foundation to it. So it's still part of the, the kind of statutes, if you like, of the college that uh, they require divine service, so a Christian act of worship to take place in college every day. Um, and at its most basic, that's what I'm employed to do. I'm employed as, as an Anglican priest to say divine service in chapel uh, each day. Um, but that, of course, has evolved over the years, and particularly in, in recent years, the, the chaplaincy role has taken on a big welfare dimension. Um, so the pastoral care that, uh, that you would expect the minister to offer uh, is something that uh, has kind of been taken on by chaplaincies. And although there are many other people, sort of nurses and GPs and counsellors and, and so on, who will support the students through their time, uh, then a big part of my role is to help 
uh, them with sort of mental health or, or just being a sort of a grown-up around the college because uh, I actually live in the college and amongst the students uh, to be around to encourage them and, and, and help them. Mm. Um, it gives enormous opportunities for Christian witness, of course, that uh, because there is a, a chapel within the college community that people are able to come along uh, to hear the choir uh, is perhaps what draws people in. Uh, but it's also an opportunity for them to consider um, faith, uh, spirituality uh, as, as uh, mm. part mm. of the, mm. the wider sort of learning and knowledge mm. that they're acquiring. When I was very kindly invited to share in a service way back, back in May 2019, um, during the start of my sabbatical, I was very impressed by the sense of community, uh, by the the. the the age spread of people who came, for instance, to the service in, in the chapel on the Sunday evening, and, and, and that sense of being part of a, a very dynamic um, community. How has that been impacted by COVID? Um, so, like all other churches and everything else, it all, all sort of ground to a halt with lockdown last a, a year ago. Um, I was up here, um, back home on, on holiday, and so I remained here through till the summer, and um, much to my surprise, the, the choir wanted to sort of record services to put online, so we uploaded things on YouTube, and people were able to, to uh, participate in, in that way and keep things going, um, and students sort of get involved by, by writing sermons and, and recording them, uh, much like Bruce does here, um, and then... Um, once term began again in October, we were pretty much able to go back to normal, um, having sort of just eight singers rather than our usual 30 or so uh, choir members um, and people continuing to gather, which uh, has been a, a wonderful privilege actually of being part of a, an academic institution because university schools were able to continue. Uh, so even when parish churches closed at the end of November, people were still able to come and worship in chapel. Mm. And so, in fact, numbers went up once there was lockdown because I had cornered the market. There was no, <laughs> nowhere else to go except chapel. Um, yes, you had some very encouraging services, didn't you? Special, some special events, baptisms and yep, confirmations. So, so, so we've had um, three baptisms uh, since October, and including those three, seven confirmations, so people mm. professing their faith. So... Um, it's certainly been very encouraging over the last three years to see people coming to chapel, perhaps uh, because it's what you do before going to formal dinner in a hall, uh, because you like the choir, uh, listening to the sermon or the words being read from scripture and beginning to engage with it more, coming along to Christianity Explored, uh, reading the Bible together with, either with me or with other student friends and, and realizing there is something to this. And, and um, yeah. Tremendous, so tremendous, yes, tremendous opportunities, tremendous opportunities. As you go back, and obviously we're hoping that things are moving on, maybe not completely out of COVID lockdown restrictions, but certainly moving on a bit. What challenges do you see in your ministry within with, with the college and indeed within the university? Obviously, lockdown makes it much easy, uh, much more difficult to meet with students one-to-one. -one. So there's been a whole year group of students who I haven't got to know as well as, as I normally would. I've I mean, I meet all 100 students when they arrive each year as freshers, but many of them I haven't seen since October. Um, so opportunities to actually get to know them uh, in person. Um, 
we're planning this term to have a, a pretty much full program of chapel services. Uh, we've consistently had 20 or so people coming along to that, which is actually pretty fantastic, considering that most of the college aren't there in residence. They, they've been working from home. Um, but continuing to have opportunities to, to run those groups, of course, it makes it much harder to, uh, to present the gospel to people if you're not encountering them in ordinary day-to-day -day interactions. Yeah, so that personal connection is important as well as Enormously. what you might do in life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and as someone who obviously has an experience of the wider church, um, the Church of England, yes, but also the wider church in, in our nation, as we kind of journey out of this period, any thoughts on maybe the challenges the church faces in a wider sense? I did ask him, that, tell him I was going to ask him this question yeah, back yeah. Friday, so just as well. Um, so obviously the, 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 the biggest Thing that all of us have in common is the shift of moving church online. Uh, many of us uh, are watching it on, on Zoom at the moment or, or have only been able to participate in that way. And it, in many sense, that's a great thing. I mean, the, the terms of number of people who are tuning in to, to watch church services around the country uh, has increased enormously. Um, but I think sort of trying to think through this theologically, and since Bruce sort of asked me to think about this a couple of days ago, I, I think we should see it as a necessary evil. So great that people can still tune in in spite of lockdown, but we certainly wouldn't want to see this as, as a permanent thing uh, for several uh, reasons, which I think are all basically to do with the fact that God has created us as embodied uh, creatures. Uh, we're not just spirits or brains um, abstract from bodies, but God has created us with physical bodies. Um, and so that means that joining together in community as embodied people is really important. Um, before lockdown, we were all very conscious of the problems of isolation and loneliness, uh, not only perhaps for older people who couldn't get out, but also for younger people who are increasingly disconnected from their communities who will uh, just spend time uh, sort of in their own homes. And the church uh, before lockdown was one of the few sort of opportunities for people to come together in community to see other people and connect. Um, so not only is the church's sort of service to society um, really based on the fact that we are a community who meets together and shares life together, uh, but that's also part of our Christian witness. Um, I've certainly found evangelism and sharing my faith much more difficult if, if I'm not meeting together with people. Um, I don't know whether that's been your experience, but certainly I think I've had all the conversations that I've had have been when I've been walking with students, actually meeting up with them. Um, for evangelistic purposes, we need to be meeting together to, to invite people to church and see what God's family is like uh, as a group of people who gather together. And that is what it means to be the body of Christ. I mean, at a fundamental level, the church is constituted when we take the Lord's Supper. That is the family meal. And unless we are eating together and gathering together physically, and Jesus has given us a physical sign of, of a meal of bread and wine, which we cannot participate in over Zoom, uh, then we are not in its deepest sense being church. We're not being Jesus' family. So great that we can be here over Zoom, but it's really not quite the same, like have we actually been at the service if we've just tuned in, um, if we can sort of be half there. 
Um, being there in spirit is great, but it's not the same as being there physically. And I'm going to keep going on if, if you, if no, you no. don't until you stop me. But um, also thinking about what does it mean to be real embodied people? So we're encouraged by our secular narrative to think of ourselves as abstract from our body. So younger people particularly are very much presenting themselves on social media. So on Facebook or on Twitter, I can create an image from myself which is abstracted from the reality of who I am. Um, when I'm here physically relating to you as a body, I can't hide behind my Facebook profile. I can't um, manicure and uh, manipulate how I'm being presented. Um, and so as church, it's really important that we come together and are real with one another, uh, that we can be accountable to our, our elders and our minister uh, by being here and really participating. Um, and, and in that sense of reality, I mean, we, we see it in, in the way that people m use and misuse their bodies, the whole confusion that there is in society over sort of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, our confusion over human sexuality, uh, our sense that if we're not happy with our bodies, then we'll just change them for a different body that we feel more comfortable with. Um, it's really important that the church witnesses to the fact that the body that we've been created in is who we are, not just sort of somebody who appears on a TV screen or, or communicates over a mobile phone. Um, so there's the community of the body. Uh, there's the body of Christ as we meet together. There's the reality of our embodiedness. And then finally, I think... And, and perhaps centrally, is, is that the resurrection of the body is completely central to the gospel message. I mean, what is the Christian message except that we are physically raised, we will be physically raised from the dead, uh, as human bodies, that the Christ, uh, the resurrected Christ that we heard Thomas puts his hand uh, in his side is a real body. And... Um, if we are a church which is afraid of the death of the body, then society is going to wonder whether we really believe in the resurrection of the body. It, part of the sort of panic uh, that we've seen over lockdown is the fear of people dying. And of course, we want to be sensible about it. We want to be cautious. We don't put ourselves deliberately in harm's way. But as Christians who believe in the resurrection, we have an assurance that Death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Uh, and we can demonstrate our faith in the resurrection by being confident in taking risk with our bodies because we know that we're going to be raised again. Um, so I think that, that gives us an, another reason why meeting together physically is so important as we go forward. And just as we draw to a close, uh, that's been very helpful, Robert, very helpful indeed in your own ministry, taking these things that you shared with us, what should we be praying about for you over the coming term and indeed into this coming year? Well, very much the same as, as I hope you're praying for Bruce and, and praying for, for one another in, um, sort of in terms of our, our witness to, to people around about us, uh, that I would continue to take opportunities to 
talk in natural ways about the Lord Jesus. Um, I get many of those opportunities, but uh, it's so easy to let them pass by, so, so seizing upon them. Um, the nature of my job is a very intense one for sort of nine or ten weeks at a time, and then much less intense for the next sort of 20 weeks or something. <laughs> I seem to be on holiday more than I'm working, but uh, it is very intense in term time. So pray for energy, uh, patience, uh, and godliness in, in the way that I do my job so that I hope that even as I'm doing something like admissions, which has no obvious relationship to being a Christian, that the way that I do that job would be distinctively Christian and make people ask questions. Well, we would want to encourage Robert. It became very clear to me, as I say, that's nearly two years past now, but that you're held in high regard by, by people within the college who are not necessarily professing Christians, but are certainly sympathetic and supportive of the role of the chaplaincy. The provost of the college was somebody who made quite clear as I sat beside him at high table that he wasn't a professing Christian, but he certainly was open to, to spiritual ministry and valued Robert's ministry and appreciated it, both for its spiritual power, but also its intellectual rigor. And in a college, you need to be able to argue and contend for the faith, and he appreciated that. So we'd want to encourage you, brother. You're doing a vital ministry there. Many of these people you're working with are people who are going to be influential in society in different ways in the years to come. And so God's using your ministry and the ministry of other chaplains and other universities up and down the land to, to bring the word of life and the word of truth to bear. So we do want to show and express our appreciation. Let's do that, but just a wee round of applause. Let's pray together. This is love, John tells us, not that we loved God, but that He first loved us and sent His Son to be the means by which our sins can be forgiven. And, O oh God, our Father, we thank You for this Easter season, for our journey through Holy Week, for our celebration last Sunday of that great truth that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And we thank you as we gather this morning, we gather in the light of the risen, conquering Son, the one in whom all your promises find their yes and their amen. We thank you that Easter means that we can see things differently. We see you, O God, the height and depth of your love in Jesus Christ. We see the seriousness of our sins, that it meant that your Son had to give Himself as a ransom for many. We see the empty tomb, and we acknowledge that in Jesus Christ you have conquered the grave. You have dealt death that fatal blow and you have secured salvation for your people, the Lamb of God who came to take away our sins. And we thank you that by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that brought Jesus again from the grave, you enable your people to see, not with physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith, you, to see as through a glass darkly, but nonetheless to see to see our lives before your holiness, our lives in need of your cleansing, 
and of your forgiving of your washing, of your sanctification, but also to see our world, the world that you loved so much, O God our Father, that you gave your only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. We thank you for the way that we receive in sight. We do thank you particularly for our brother Robert here today. We thank you for him as a man of God and for your work of grace within his life. We thank you for that calling to serve you within the life of ministry and particularly within the setting of Oriel College. For the fruit of that ministry in relationships built up and connections made in those who have come to faith and were baptized and confirmed in that most holy faith. For others in the college, both staff and students, who may not at this present time be professing Christians, but see something and hear something of the truth of God through their chaplain and are made to stop and to think and to look at things differently. And so we do pray a blessing upon Robert. We ask that as he returns towards the end of this week and picks up the reins of ministry, which involves all the academic work and everything else along with the chaplaincy work, we ask that you would continue to give him physical strength, emotional strength, and spiritual strength. Enable him by your spirit to continue to undertake that ministry and to develop it in the ways that you have purposed for him. We thank you for that promise, Lord Jesus, that as you are lifted up, you draw men and women to yourself. And so may that ministry continue to be fulfilled, that promise continue to be fulfilled within the college, and not just of Oriel College, but up and down our land in student ministry, through chaplains, through organizations like Agape and UCCF, and through individual students. Lord Jesus Christ, be glorified and made known in these days amongst these people, we pray. And so by your Spirit, as we just now turn for a short time to your Word, enable us to see things contained within your Word and therefore to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Some of you may have seen the Archbishop of Canterbury as he commented, uh, was asked to comment and to speak about his own remembrance and experience of Prince Philip, but also was given the opportunity, which I thought was good um, on television, to say something about the Easter hope that would be a great comfort to the Queen. We know that Her Majesty the Queen is a woman of faith, and Easter is important to her own dear mother passed passed on in Easter way back in 2002, and now her husband has died. Yes, at the age of 99, nearly 100, and obviously very frail, but the Archbishop spoke of how he was confident that, yes, through the memories that she would have of Philip, her husband, through the care and love of her family that surrounds her and supports her, but above everything else, through that Easter faith and knowledge of Christ crucified and risen, she would know God's peace, even in the midst of her tears and her sorrow. You see, my friends, the resurrection, as, as Robert very helpfully reminded us and shared with us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ enables us to see things differently. Just those verses that I read earlier from John's Gospel, notice of how much sight is part of it. 
when Tom, we read that now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he says, unless I see the nails marks, nail marks in his hands and put the fingers where the nails were and put my hand to the side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them this time. Through, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas, when he saw the Lord standing before him, said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We are those who do not physically see Jesus in our midst, but as Robert again reminded us, as we broke bread and shared wine at communion, as we gathered together around here at the front of the church, we saw the Lord revealed in the bread and wine. As we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, we see Him with the eyes of faith. We encounter Him, and we are encouraged by Him. We are challenged by Him as He speaks into our lives. But of course, Easter is not only just for our personal consumption. I read a book a few years ago, and it's actually been on our bookstall, This Changes Everything, and it's Unleashing the Power of the Resurrection in Your Life. Can I commend this little book, This Changes Everything? It's an IVP book, and it can be either, you can either get this copy from the bookstall here, or indeed you can, you can order it, or I'll order it for you at the Glow. And in very short chapters, and that, I like short chapters, I'm afraid I'm at age now, if something's too long and I start reading, I find myself falling to sleep, I'm getting an old man. Um, so it's short chapters, but it, dis, it explores, dare I say, in 32 very short chapters, just how the resurrection of Jesus Christ enables us to see and in seeing believe, and in believing know, and in knowing be radically different. And how in our jaundiced and cynical world, God's people, as Robert has reminded us, as the body of Christ, are meant to manifest that in a way that people can see. And yes, sight, of course, involves not just physically seeing, but hearing and receiving into our being the manifestation of what it means to be part of the resurrection body of believers. I want just for these last few minutes really to pick up on something that Robert was saying about the impact of these circumstances. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 12, these words of Jesus. Jesus said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? It's been hard for any of us to be able to see a way out of these past days if it certainly wasn't for the hope of vaccine and actually physically be able to go and get jabbed in the arm and to see that taking place, then I'm sure many of us, including some of us sitting here this morning, wouldn't be as confident to come out having been able to experience 
the vaccine, being able to see it being rolled out in our society and see the impact of someone who has received it, but was a wee bit younger, so I was further back in the list, see the impact it had on many older people, so it has encouraged us, although there are many very serious challenges still about, and we know that. But as human beings, we need, in order to get on with life, we need to see that there is hope. We need to sense that there is a future. We need to be aware of that which is greater and bigger and ultimately better than ourselves. And when we lose that, that's when so many people become disillusioned, especially over these past years. We've seen that particularly. Again, I'm, using, I'm just using that word just because of the conversation almost. We see that worked out amongst many younger people. Perhaps we rightly get ahead earlier there was complainings and understandably so of young people get large numbers of young people gathering down at Bothwell Castle in large numbers. But if you've been told that you know this is the way to have life and then you can't have it because of the impact of COVID and the economic and social impact of COVID, then understandably you just see, well what point is there? And unfortunately extreme examples and suicide and depression but also in examples of rebellion and expressions of frustration. We've seen that, and I'm sure we will continue to see that, perhaps even more so, being worked out in our society over the coming days and indeed perhaps the few years. The consequences, as I said from the very beginning, the consequences of COVID are far more serious than simply getting the illness. And the consequences of that within our society we will see being worked out over these coming months and years. But as God's people, resurrection people, with a new sight, a sight that it focuses on the risen Christ who was the same but different, transformed and yet still met with his people, so with that resurrection sight, we are called to be able to understand what we see. The problem so often, of course, isn't it, is that the church is behind the times. I remember my dad long gone now, used to say, and Elizabeth will be nodding her head when she hears this, used to go on about the three double-decker buses that used to sit outside the wee church in the halfway for their Sunday school outing away back in the 1950s and perhaps the early 60s. I faintly remember getting on the, up, the double-decker, I mean, when you think of it, it was completely unsafe, getting on the double-decker bus upstairs, these old buses, there was only one big long seat, you remember? And you just got shoved up, there was no seat belts, no, no social distancing, nothing like that, you just hung on for dear life as this clapped out banger, staggered down to air. And indeed, if you were really brave, you went downstairs, hung onto the rail at the back of the bus where there was no door, and shouted, push your granny off the bus. <laughs> but even as I say that, some of you are listening to that won't even know what I'm talking about. Because times have changed. At the very time back then, in the 50s and early 60s, when we should have been having holiday clubs and all the things that became in vogue in the late 70s and 80s, did the church do that? Of course, it didn't. And by the time we got into the vogue of doing holiday clubs and everything else, well, for a period, yes, but as we found even here latterly, that type of ministry, that type of gathering became increasingly irrelevant. The church, unfortunately, often, not always, but often is behind the times. And part of the reason for that is we don't understand the times. We don't see what is happening, and we therefore are not able to bring the truth, the unchanging truth of God's Word, the reality of the resurrection, to bear on the times in which we live. Now, of course, there's reason for that. So often we prefer to be 
in an environment that we're comfortable with, that we're used to, that's familiar to us. That's especially challenging for a congregation like ours that is aging, including the minister. And we feel more settled in what we were used to, what we saw in the past. That reminds us perhaps of happier and more youthful times, and we can retreat into that. That should never be the case with someone who knows the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who looks forward to that day when Christ will return, when we'll be raised. We have expectation. There is a future to be entered into. We are not those who dwell and live and die in the past. But the truth is, we do. And Jesus here challenges the crowd, challenges the disciples to understand, to interpret the appearance and the situation of the time, to look around us to listen to what people are saying, to think through it. Robert shared with us this morning, very, very helpful, bless you, brother, very helpfully thinking through some of the challenges that we face and how we deal with that. The danger is if we don't, we'll either try to go back to what we're used to, and the problem is that will probably not be possible, ultimately, because of the COVID and because of restrictions and because changes in lifestyle and everything else, or else we'll be left adrift, staggering on, just waiting till it's all over. And as a minister of the church, United Free Church, before that the Church of Scotland, I'm only too well aware of what happens when believers and churches fail to be able to see the times and to understand them and to respond to them with the resurrection power of God. They age, they dwindle, and they die. And that's not Jesus' desire. He appeared to Thomas. He appeared that next week. Thomas had missed out. He hadn't turned up. He was, in many ways, I've got a lot of sympathy for Thomas. He was at least honest and said, well, that's it. When they went to Jerusalem, nobody told his disciples, well, we might as well go and die with him. You know, that's it. That's the end of the story. And he didn't. He wasn't there that first week. In some ways, maybe he wasn't there because he was sickened with the rest of the disciples as well and also sickened with himself. But the second week, he turned up. And what happened? He saw the risen Jesus, and that transformed his understanding both of God, but also of who he is. He said, my Lord and my God. And although the passages of Scripture, the pages of Scripture don't tell us much more of what happened to Thomas, tradition certainly tells us that he, like the rest of the disciples, was transformed to see his world in a new way. German tradition has it, ultimately even to India, in order to preach the gospel. I tell you, for a first century Jew living in Palestine, that was to see the world in a radically different way, to journey out of the Holy Land, and to go to these pagan areas. But he did. Why? Because he'd seen the Lord, and therefore he saw the world in a new and fresh way. And that's our calling today, my friends. Now, of course, not all of us are able to spend hours, either because of our life or because of the stage we're in in life, of spending hours reflecting on the times. We're not all blessed with the same intellectual ability. We're not all blessed with the same access to resources. We're not all particularly called, as Robert is, for a particular ministry which calls us to do that. But we can all listen. We can all watch. We can all pray. And we can all think. Still, we've got breath in our body and we're not blighted with dementia or Alzheimer's. We can still think. 
And think of what God is saying through these times. I've mentioned much over this past year some thoughts that I have of what God is saying through these times. Perhaps look back, think, and remember. See the opportunities that online does bring, but also see the crying need that people have for community, for talking, for belonging, for seeing something different. If we don't, and we simply see ourselves, or see how things used to be, then we'll die. We will die as a congregation. But if we do allow the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that brought Jesus from the grave, the same Spirit that came upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost and enabled and so transformed these men and indeed others so that they were able to see the world as the mission field for God, see ways of engaging with that world and know the power of God to do that as we see that story and allow that story to be our narrative in our day and in our generation then no tongue can tell and no mind can truly take in what God has prepared for those who believe. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the weather the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? I mentioned earlier that John says that we see as through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. We do, in a sense, have glasses. I need my glasses. That was another thing I had to go and get in my bag. Without them, now I'm peering. These words are blurry. We see everything through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That gives us a new perspective, a new insight, and a new understanding. Not locked in the past, not precious about the present, but open for the future, because God is a God of the future. We need to see things through those lens. The queen needs to see her present loss, very real loss, through that lens of the resurrection. And certainly what I've read already is she will carry on doing her work. We need to see our lives, but our times through that lens in order that we might understand. And in understanding, believe. And in believing, do. And in doing, be the people of God for this day, for the 2020s, in the same way as generations past sought to be faithful in their day. You know how to interpret the appearance of the weather. How is it you don't know how to interpret this present time? My friends, the resurrection of Jesus enables us to do just that. We're going to hear our final hymn. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ you are the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
You're the God who holds our future in your hands, a future for the believer, which is one of resurrection. For that great and glorious hope, we give you thanks. But we thank you that the light from that empty tomb still shines into the life of your people today to transform, transform us, to renew us, to enable us to see and in seeing believe and believing be your kingdom people. And so we ask for your Spirit's enabling to look to the future, to be able to understand the times in which we live. Lord, we're all different, so that's why we need to, as a body to do that so that together we may discover the mind of Christ for the days that lie ahead and for the future you have purposed for us and for your church in our land. We pray that for Robert and his ministry. We pray that for Martin and Jennifer Patterson and the family as they consider and as they plan and work towards going out to serve you in Vietnam and Hanoi. Pray that for Nathan and Steffi, the family, as they fulfill your calling in their lives in Comores. We pray that for folks like Fabri and Elaine, our missionary partners, and Catherine and Anwar and others overseas. We pray that for just ordinary believers like ourselves. Raise us up. Enable us to see and to know that you're the God who does all things well. And now may the God who brought again from the dead his own Son, our only Savior, Jesus Christ, keep our hearts and minds fixed in the love and in the knowledge of him. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit rest upon us and journey with us this Easter season and forevermore. And the people of God said, Amen.